I would love to have you at that, at that workshop. It'll be fun just to hang out together anyway. But let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what you've been doing in this church and in our lives. And we ask that you would um, break through even farther into our hearts. We like that image of waiting, of, of gathering, of, of being fed and filled up. We want that to overflow out of us, like Romans fifteen thirteen, that it, that it would just overflow to the people around us. And so we pray, Father God, that you would feed us today and in the next few weeks about these things, um, and then with the, the guest speakers that we have coming after that, Father, that would really try to move us forward in understanding where you are moving and what you are doing and, and how we can participate with you. So I pray that you bless these words today. Anything that is of Jason would fall away, and everything that is of you would shine forth for your name to be glorified above all else. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, we, uh, as I said, we finished two mini-series, uh, the story of the Bible and then also the missing half uh, in the past weeks. We've had some people in between there, uh, but... But these are all linked. All three of these series are linked together. And today we're going to start our third, Cat and Dog Theology. Um, We've been talking about how God has blessed Abraham to be a blessing, right? So we are blessed by God to be a blessing to the the world, to bring God's glory uh, to the world. And so we're going to learn today how to think outside the box a little bit, right, by focusing on the theme of Two different very famous or very uh, familiar pets, uh, cats and dogs, right? Maybe you have one of those or maybe you have both of them. And we're going to learn to think outside of our normal thought patterns. And thinking outside the box actually is not such an easy thing to do, right? You get kind of stuck in the way that you think. Um, Now, for instance, if I asked you to uh, change this Roman numeral 9 into a 6, which one line, what would you do? Right? Could anybody answer that question? Well, it's easy. You just add an S in front, right? It's no longer a Roman numeral, but it does say six, right? So it, it like we get stuck in thinking certain ways and we can't see things fresh, right? It's, it's kind of difficult. It's actually, you know, it's kind of tough to, to think in a new way. Cat and dog theology challenges us, therefore, to think differently concerning our faith, concerning our Christianity, right? And it's, it's challenging because it dares us to believe, and I don't mean to be negative Nancy here, but to believe that the church is, in a sense, and I mean church across the board, theologically cancerous, right? And if that cancer is left unchecked, it will sort of eat away further at our spiritual vitality and our maturity. And that cancer is cat theology, right? Um, now, I, I want to point out that this book is, you know, is part of a, you know, a whole thing that Unveiling Glory, this unveilingglory.com, I think it is, you can go on there, you can learn all kinds of things. That's where I've gotten all this material, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I just want to make that available to you as well. But it's can- this cancer is called cat theology. I drank too much coffee this morning. I'm a little bit wound up. Got to calm down. Okay. Um, that's how you calm down. You just go. All right. 
Um, <laughs> but let's, let's illustrate this by reading Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read it to you. Ready? Be patient. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was, surround, uh, was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and and he gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good, and it was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to open the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to make sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in uh, in the vault of the sky to give the light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. And he also made the stars, and God set them in a vault of the sky to give the light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky, etc., and so on and so forth, etc., and there's a lot more. And at some point, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, why would Pastor Jason torture us by reading through this whole chapter? Right? Because it's kind of boring. Right? And, and honestly, most Christians are bored with Genesis chapter 1. And we may feel that we've, we've, we've uh, never, or we've heard it all before, that we're too familiar with it, or that um, some of us aren't even sure if it's really all that true, which I do believe it's true. But none of these would be the real reason to our boredom, because the real reason is that we are not mentioned. We are not mentioned. You know, we only slide, sort of slide it in at the end it, like a footnote, but for the majority of it, there's not a mention of humanity, right? We're not, we haven't come about yet. And if it ain't about us, then it's boring, right? In fact, most don't get interested until Genesis chapter 3, because at least then we have something going on. There's sort of this rescue operation starting, right? But Genesis 1 and 2 is sort of boring to all of us. It's about fish and birds and light and dark and et cetera and so on and so forth. And who cares? Right? Let's get to me. I want to hear about me. How do I fit into this? 
And subconsciously what we do is we communicate that the Bible is all about us. But we should ask, who is the main character of the Bible? And if we ask that question, there are two possible answers, obviously. Now, if the first one is God, if he's the main character, then we pick up the Bible and we ask, what does God get out of this, all of this stuff? What's he, what's he get out of saving me? What's he get out of, you know, if a miracle takes place and all this kind of stuff, what does God get out of this? But if people are the main character, then we ask, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of salvation? Right? What's in it for me? Now, I want to make two bold statements that are, I think, probably pretty obvious. Number one, God is the main character of the Bible. And he lives to radiate his glory all throughout the earth. And number two, that the average Christian, maybe not you, but maybe you, the average Christian says that God is the main character, but they live and they act as if humanity is the main character. And I think is probably one of the greatest problems we're seeing in our society right now, that there is no inkling that God is real and that he is something that we need to answer to, right? So we live and we act as if uh, we are the main character, and as a result, humanity often replaces God on the throne of life. We become God. And this realization kind of takes us outside of our box. For us to see the truth of these statements and how strong the cancer in us is, let's go over two examples of this kind of theology. Number one, so our first example is found in, in, the, in the answer to the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Why did Jesus come here? What was his purpose? Now our answer, if I asked you that, our answer is usually that he came to die on the cross for our sins. Which is really, if you think about it, it's a man-centered, a human-centered uh, perspective as opposed to a God-centered perspective. Every time we think about something the- theologically in this world, in our minds, it goes through an instant filter in our brains like water through coffee grounds, right? Our thinking, our outlook, our worldview, our conclusions all get colored in a certain way. Our filter comes in the form of this question, what do I get out of this? No matter what comes our way in life, you know, friends, God's glory, music, you know, authority, creation, you know, feelings, whatever it is, we're only concerned on how it affects us. But if we ask a different question, what did God get out of Jesus' death, which is a question you may never have asked yourself, we may also answer, he gets us, right? Which is really reveals our, again, our self-centered filter. What did God get out of Jesus' death? Oh, he gets us. In truth, God got a lot more than just us. He gets glory, he gets honor, he gets praise, he gets worship, he gets obedience, he redeems his creation. Things we don't think about because we are so focused on what we get out of it, we have a hard, really hard time thinking differently, thinking outside the box. Second example is that, 
you know, what's our primary reason for not wanting people to go to hell? Like we would do that, that, uh, that workshop and maybe we would go out and share our faith. Why? What's our primary reason for not wanting people to go to hell? Well, we might answer, so they won't suffer for eternity, right? Revealing again our man-centered sort of filter and perspective on everything. Now, we see King David's take on physical death in Psalm 30, verse 9. He says, what gain is there in my destruction, in my going down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? So, in other words, God, if I die, if if I just go away and I'm not with you, who's going to give you the praise that you deserve? Who's going to acknowledge your glory? Right? That's what he's saying. He is far more concerned about God's glory and God's being praised than he is about dying himself. Great perspective. What's the Apostle Paul have to say about it, right? Paul tells us why Christ came in Romans 15, 8 and 9. He says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that... And the, the two words, so that, are very important key words right there. He's telling us that there's a reason why Christ, Christ came, right? And that there's a purpose statement that's going to follow in the next rest of the sentence, right? Now, to fully understand it, let's understand what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles might not go to hell. He doesn't say that. That would be the perfect place to say it, right? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't write it. it. It would it would fit really well right there. It would fit really well with our very common human-centered filter that we filter the Scriptures through. It's because our not going to hell, though, isn't what Christianity is all about. That's not what it's all about. So why did Christ come? He says, so that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. We are saved to glorify God. It's not fire insurance. We don't just get saved and, you know, oh, lucky I'm in, right? We are saved to glorify God with all of our lives, with all of our thinking, with all of our behavior, with our witness to the world, with our mouth, with everything that we are. Living so focused on Him that when people look at us, they see Him at some level. That's why we're saved. What about Jesus? What what was his take on this? Did Jesus focus primarily on us? Or did he focus primarily on the Father when he went to the cross? When he was hanging there on the cross, what was his primary focus? At that moment, was he man-centered or God-centered when he was going to the cross? The key word here is primarily, right? Primarily, and in order to feel the full impact of what it says, we need to consider also what Jesus doesn't say, right? 
In John 12, 27 and 28, Jesus is walking back with all of his disciples, right? And his time is eminent. It's right before him. Death is coming. And so he opens his heart to the disciples and he says this. Now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And then he says, Father. Now, when he says Father right there, it, first we know that, that in what comes next, what he's about to say next, he is done addressing the disciples. And secondly, it means he's going to address his, his heavenly Father about what is going to happen to him. And as we all know, death by crucifixion is horrible. If you ever heard me preach on, on the actual physical properties of it, it, it's horrible. It's one of the worst things to endure in life. That's why the Romans loved doing it. It was an extremely difficult struggle, you know, not merely due to the nails in your wrists and your feet, but in the fact that you're, in, you're trying desperately to breathe. So you're hanging on the cross on, your, on the weight of your, your, uh, your wrists, and then you have to push up against the nail to actually get, be able to suck in breath and then exhale, and then you fall back down on that weight of, of your wrists. And it's just a back and forth of that. You, you lose all your energy, you're sweating, there's, there's um, splinters in your back from rubbing against the cross, all that kind of stuff, and, and you die a slow, painful death from suffocation. That's really what it is. That's, crucifixion kills you by suffocation. It's horrible. But that doesn't even compare to the wrath that he would experience from the Father by taking away the sin of, the, of mankind. We can't even imagine what the infinite wrath of a holy God is like against the sin of mankind. And that is what Jesus underwent for, for us and for the glory of God. In light of his agonizing experience, right, Jesus would definitely, at that moment, talk to his heavenly Father about the primary reason why he was dying and not the secondary reason, right? So what does he say? Well, he doesn't say, Father, save these kind, wonderful, worthy people from hell. They just don't deserve that. He does not say that. The truth is, he doesn't even mention us at that moment. That is humbling, if you think about it. We preach a very fuzzy, you know, whatever Jesus. He says, Father, glorify your name. That's where his focus is. Totally and absolutely. So the true driving force which put Christ on the cross was to bring His Father glory. That was the driving force. It was not necessarily all about us. And now that's hard to accept for us because it forces us to think differently, which is not easy. And remember, we're asking the question, what's the primary reason for Christ's death on the cross? Did He die for our sins? Absolutely. We are not saying he didn't. That would be incorrect if I said that. He did die for our sin, but that sentiment in itself is incomplete. And we've forgotten that as Christians. What's missing is he primarily did this to bring the Father glory, to reveal the Father's glory to the world. What's left out of our thinking is always the primary reason. 
You know, some of us really love that old, the chorus from that worship lyric. It's been around for a while. Uh, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. But he didn't think about us above all, right? He thought about his Father's glory above all. That's what Jesus thought about above all. That lyric is theologically incorrect, and we are affected by this cancerous thinking in the church. A good worship leader sifts through their songs and throws songs out and won't play them or won't sing them in church because they are theologically incorrect. So we have a threefold witness. Eh. I'm going to go disconnect those in the middle of the night tonight. But, uh, so we have this threefold witness. In the Old Testament, as David uh, points to God's glory, and then we have in the New Testament where Paul said it was all about God's glory, and then Jesus himself indicates it's primarily about God's glory. Right? Now, we don't deny that Christ died for our sins. We preach that here very very clearly. It's just secondary to God's glory, to the Father's glory. It's not primarily all about us. And that may make us uncomfortable, but remember, His love for us, and this is true, is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how much He loves us. But we've got to ask the question, why does God love Well, God loves because He is a glorious being, right? One aspect of God's glory is is that He is a loving being. So it gets back to His glory. It always goes back to His glory. See, we can't remember Romans 11.36. It says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Right? All things, even Christ's death on the cross, was for for God's glory. This too is from God, this this is is through God, and this is uh, to God, right? So from God, through God, and to God, it's all primarily about Him and not about us. So depending on who the main character of the Bible is, you have two totally different types of theology that you're dealing with, which we're calling cat and dog theology. You may be thinking that you love your dog or you love your cat. You might be a cat person or a dog person. I don't know. Or you might be both. But we're going to highlight you know, their God-given traits and parallel them to certain theological attitudes held by many Christians today. Right? Cats and dogs, as we know, are stereotypically very different. Right? The average dog, when you enter the room, wags your tail, licks you, jumps up and down, gets really excited when you walk into the room. You know, my dog, when he got older, couldn't move, and just, you know, but his tail would always flap on the ground whenever you walked in the room. They always show some sort of an excitement that you walked in the room. A cat, though, hardly even acknowledges you, don't do they, right? They may not even wake up. When I walk into the room, my cat just is dead asleep. And until I touch her or go near her, she doesn't even move, right? Dogs say, you know, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, and all that. And and they conclude from that that you must be God, right? They think, oh, you're master, you're God. Cats say, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me. And they conclude, I must be God, right? Which characterizes Christian theology around the world today. 
It really does. There are those who say out there in the world, you must be God. Everything revolves around you. Everything is from you. Everything is through you. Everything is to you. Praise you, Father God, right? But there are those out there and many of those out there who who say god did everything for me the earth the stars the sun the galaxies everything all the blessings of the world are all intended for us for humanity for me so i must be god now theological cats of course would never say that last part they would never say out loud i must be god that's that's not even on their mind But they do say that God did everything for us. Jesus left the Father's glory. He came to the earth. He suffered. He died. He went back to heaven to build mansions for us. And it must be all about us. He not only died for us, he must live for us. This is so fantastic, says the cat. Two different theologies. Two different mindsets. So cats say, God wants to bless me. Dogs say, I want to bless God. And we see the difference, but yet they are so similar, they're hard to tell apart. Both seem so Christian and both seem so right in what they say and how they live. But one is man-centered and the other is God-centered. And there is a huge difference between the two. So let's look at another difference. Cats think God serves me. You know, in their thinking, all they have to do is pray and add the phrase in the name of Jesus at the end and some sort of like presto magico kind of thing, you know, this cosmic vending machine that God pumps out the the answer to their prayer, right? To give them whatever they want. But dogs say, I serve God. So I will do whatever he wants. I will do do it how he wants me to do it. And I will do it when he wants me to do it. I don't complain. Cats think God, God wants to advance my kingdom. Think of the American dream, right? So they go boldly before the Lord and they ask him to give them a promotion or a raise or help them get a loan for whatever they desire. Think of Joel Osteen. Yeah, I just said it again. Just think about that gospel that he preaches, and it is a wrong gospel. Dogs say, I advance God's kingdom. I live for the Lord. Cats are heavily influenced by culture, striving for that all-elusive sort of self-image that we struggle for all the time. And they believe, God thinks the world of me. He wants to make me happy all the time. Dogs say, I think the world of God. Cats think God lives to make me famous, right? And as a result, they do everything to draw attention to themselves. But it's in the Christian context, of course, right? So they want to be noticed in the church. They, they want the role of authority. They want the role of a power position in church life. They want God to bless them so others will know how special they are. I've been guilty of this. Sure you have as well. Dogs say, I live to make God famous. I live for the the sake of, 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 of God's name and God's glory. They want to get lost in the background. They want to be a signpost pointing to the focus on God. Cats cry out, God bless America. God bless America, right? Because to them, 
America comes first and God's kingdom comes second. Dogs say everything's from God and through God and to God and they call America to bless God. To cats, God's uh, just a means to an end, right? They really don't want a relationship or an intimacy with the Father in heaven. They really just want His blessings. They just want to experience His blessings. But dogs say, God's the very end of all things. He's what our souls hunger and thirst for. I'd rather have God than, than all of His blessings. Cats constantly ask, what do I get out of this? Dogs ask, what does God get out of this? As a matter of fact, dogs even say that. They even ask that, what does God get when they're reading the Bible, right? So let's look at, the one, at one verse in the Bible, reading it as a dog would read it, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, the verse where I stopped earlier, it says, part of it says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And as we read through that whole chapter, we're getting all bored. We're just going to focus on that one, right? Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And a dog keeps asking, what did God get out of this? So they imagine God sort of taking the first steps into this newly formed ocean. Waves are crashing around his feet, if you could, if you could imagine that. He reaches down, he grabs some clay, and he begins to model the first fish, you know, patting it down fat and fat, uh, flat and, you know, fashioning the fins and, and sort of painting it with a yellow base. Maybe he added white stripes, a little black and uh, blue around the white, you know, and when, when he's finished, he may have said, this is really good. And he breathes life into it, and he sits it down in the water, and he watches it swim away. And God found joy in making that fish. Maybe he made a second one, you know, a bit rounder, starting with a little black, right? And he, he, he then he has this white pattern along the bottom. Maybe that's his fingerprints, right? And he adds yellow around the lips and you know, a little yellow stripe around the eye. Maybe he made the prisoner fish, uh, to remind us that he's going to let us out of the prison of sin. Maybe we think about that when we look at, look at that fish. We think about God's glory and what he's done for us. But his creati- creativity wasn't limited to color, size, and shape, right? I don't know if you know this, but you can, you can think about the gorilla, gorilla crocodile. Now, I never heard of the, this thing before I you know, came across it. But it, it, imagine the archangel Michael, right? He's up in heaven and he comes to... God the Father, and he says, you know what? I love, I love this thing. Love it. Love the gorilla crocodile, crocodile, if I'm saying that correctly. But it just doesn't work. It goes belly up in the water. It's not buoyant. It's amazing. Looks wonderful. But it just doesn't work. It can't swim around in the water. It flops over. And God responds with a smile. And he says, Michael, Inside the DNA of that crocodile, I created him to go around and eat rocks in order to stay upright, to stay buoyant. You want to get excited about creation? Go talk to my wife. She, she, she has things like this. She gets so excited about stuff. But literally, right now, today, in India, there is a crocodile which goes around eating rocks so that they can remain buoyant in the water. Now, if you think God was bored with creation that day, you have missed the whole point. My 
daughters and my daughter, uh, my daughter-in-law are out uh, camping in the Rocky Mountain National Park right now. They sent me a little video of their campsite this morning. Gosh, man, that's, I would, I'd rather. I love you guys, but I'd much rather be there right now. It was beautiful, just beautiful. See, God must have been beside Himself with joy when He made all this stuff. And we get to participate in all that. The angels must have given God a symphony of praise as they saw His glory on display all throughout creation. And in in that excitement, in that moment, maybe God said, write all this down and keep it because we want to share this joy with everybody in the future. And at that moment, Genesis chapter 1 was created. It was just stored for integrity but us cats are bored why because we're not concerned about what god gets out of this we've been trained to think only about what we get what we want and although our blessing is not incorrect it is incomplete all by itself So that focus on God's blessing us by itself becomes a cancer which slowly eats away at our spiritual maturity and our spiritual vitality and it leads to theologies that allow a humanistic worldview into it. And therefore we see a split in the church which we're seeing like no other right now in America and across the world probably. We need to start asking, what's God get? What does God get out of all of this? And then we can notice, and we can radiate His glory in everything, and we can realize life is not about us. We can stop being so selfish, so self-centered, so you know, self-pitying and all that kind of stuff. That's the box that we have to get out of. We have to learn that life is primarily about God and His glory, Cat versus dog theology. Cat theology is man-centered. Dog theology is God-centered. And I hope that we are learning how we've been boxed in with our Christianity, which may be correct at some levels, but it is often incomplete. Over the coming three weeks in the future, we're going to continue to encourage each other to get out of the box and live for the glory of God in a new and fresh way. And as uh, Christine pointed out, we're waiting on the Lord to hear where we're going next. I think we're getting some answers as leadership, where we're going in the next decade of our church or whatever. And I think I'm, I'm getting pretty excited about where, where, where the Lord is going to take us. But we need to go there together. So be prayerful and uh, really look, look at how you think. All right, and we're going to explore this. And then after we get done with this series, we're going to have another guy come uh, who's going to share about sort of the internationals around us and his experience with them. He said that um, there are 13 major uh, unreached people groups in the world that, you know, where you cannot get into their countries, places like Saudi Arabia and things like that. He lives in an area where he has met people and has ministered to people from every single one of those people groups so god is bringing those people to us when we can't go to them and that's pretty exciting and i want to get involved in that i want to be a part of that so let's be praying towards that end and uh i'll pray this out of here and go out with a blessing and then uh feel free to hang out and talk
Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you that you are sort of dismantling some of what we have thought we should be. You're even dismantling what church we thought church should be through this pandemic and everything else. And you've, you're, you're sort of peeling away the things that are not useful and the things that actually uh, cripple us and hold us back. So, Father, we, we ask that you would move us forward with clarity and wisdom and discernment and desire, that you would embody uh, our worship, the word that we study, and you would be embodied in our witness as a church. Father, we pray for these things because of you. we want your glory to go forth. We do not want our fame. We, we ask for your name to go forth. So we ask for divine appointments over the coming months. We ask for good training. We ask for deep clarity on where you're leading us. We don't want to run ahead of you. We want to follow you in your footsteps. Take us where we, we should go. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Whew. God bless you guys.